I did a concert recently when Mick and Noel were both in the audience. And uh, that's a weird feeling, performing in front of the guy who made your fiddle and the other guy who made your bow. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, a radio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, I'm Joe McHugh, and this is part two of our podcast featuring my interview with Irish fiddler Kevin Burke. We begin our conversation looking at similarities and differences between the violin and the electric guitar, two instruments that seem to possess a special power to shift consciousness in unexpected ways. I never paid the much attention to the instrumentation in the pop music of the day. You know, I, I kind of like the, you know, the, some of the Beatles songs have a kind of a jangling type of guitar sound, and um, the birds, of course, uh, with their electric 12-string. I thought there were nice noises, but I never really was moved by them. The, 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 the Stones sounds I found a bit richer. Um, but when I heard Jimi Hendrix, I really sat up and paid attention. Um, that was the first time I really felt I'd heard an electric guitar really being so expressive. And, and I saw it as a, as a lead melody instrument not something that you just drum along to a song. Um, he, re he really... He caught my attention with the... The first song I heard was Purple Haze. Oh, no, the first song I heard was Hey Joe, which I thought was very interesting. I wasn't sure if I liked it or not, but I found it very interesting. The second song I heard was Purple Haze. Very soon afterward, like just a matter of a few weeks later, he seemed to come out with this other song, which I, I never had anything like it. It was so ugly and raucous, but I, 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 I loved it. And right after that, very soon after that, uh, The Wind Cries Mary came out which was uh, the opposite, really beautiful and dreamy and uh, gorgeous, lyrical, no anger or aggression in that at all. And I thought, you know, this guy is really interesting. Three songs. I've heard three songs in the space of about a month. All with really striking 
use of the guitar. The guitar, the guitar tracks in my head more than songs. I didn't really care what he was singing about. It was just the the use of the guitar. Um, and most of my life, I've found the vo the voice of the instruments to be more interesting than the voice of the singer. Now, I've just alienated all my singer friends, but you know the the voice of the song is, uh, of course very important and the voice of the singer is very important but what appeals to me most of the time above that is the voice of the instruments um, nearly all my heroes are musicians as opposed to singers not all but nearly all um, and Hendrix was the first guy to really make me see the electric guitar that way. Um, and also, I liked, I've, I noticed, you know, he was portrayed as this psychedelic madman who used to set fire to his guitar. But um, I, I, I saw just a supreme uh, musician, a scholar. And the the songs that he's you know the 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 most of the songs that I listen to uh, when I you know that I pay attention to word wise they're telling stories you know the the one of the songs I really like was called Voodoo Child uh, oh sorry Highway Highway Child. And it's just about a, a fella like bombing around, his old guitar strung across his back, his dusty heels, dusty shoes, you know, it's just a guy thumbing a lift or something. Um, red house, you know, broken, broken hearted lover kind of thing. Um, and I, I like the way he would put a tale together. Spanish castle magic, was it? Castles made of sand. I, I really enjoyed the images and the stories of his songs. But mostly it was the, the way his guitar would help to tell that story, you know. Um, I forgot where I was going with that. Um, well, we're talking about this ability to play tones in a, such a way that they, they move us into another plane of of understanding or perception. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, Hendrix uh, kind of revolutionised guitar playing all over the world. But more importantly, in my head. <laughs> he revolutionised it in my head. And I started to... Well, I'd already... I'd already... I'd already... Uh, noticed there was a kind of a philosophical power in music. I'd come to this realisation through Irish traditional music, um, specifically the playing of Michael Coleman. But I started to notice that it was present in other kinds of music too. And... Uh, 
that philosophical power um, is probably where anyone who devotes their live life to music, it's probably in there uh, that they find comfort. And the pursuit of that philosophical power is probably what drives a lot of musicians. Um, And that's probably why altered states of consciousness through drugs, drink, meditation, that's probably involved too. I don't know if it's true, but musicians seem to be more susceptible to use and abuse of mind-altering things. They definitely seem to sing about it more, but then that's their job, isn't it? <laughs> well, there's an interesting question there. Um, and, I, and I wanted to ask you this question. Your first time where you experienced this, I don't know how to, why, because the experience is the experience, so there's really no, it's very difficult to put words onto what it is. But let's say this transcended experience or out-of-body experience. Oh, I can remember it quite specifically. Um, I was sitting on the arm of a chair in my parents' house, you know, the house I was living in. When I was about 12 or 13, it was uh, an afternoon, you know, maybe three, four o'clock in the afternoon, nothing particular going on. And I was listening to a Michael Coleman record, I was trying to play along with it, and I was, you know, I was alternately playing along with it, and then listening to it for a while and play along. And I stopped and I listened to it, and I suddenly thought, I've never really heard this before. I've heard it a thousand times before, but actually, I think this is the first time I heard it. And I suddenly saw a, a person, a personality trying to I, fe I felt the sounds were, were trying to give me a glimpse into a personality. And I realized that music could do that for the first time. That it wasn't just a bunch of sounds strung together. There was a purpose behind that. Um, and, you know, I suppose it's a convoluted way of saying self-expression. Um, but it felt much deeper than just expressing yourself by saying something. With work, saying with, you know, if I say if I say to somebody, um, I think I'm going to make a cup of tea now. I'm expressing myself, but it, 
it doesn't resonate with much philosophical power. But when I hear, when I heard the music that day, that's all I was thinking of, you know, kind of soul-searching and... Um, him striving for something that he probably doesn't really know himself what he's striving for, you know. And to this day, when I'm playing in front of an audience, whether they're familiar with this kind of music or not, that's my goal, is to just give them a glimpse of why I spend so much time and energy doing this. And I don't, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I couldn't put the answer to that in words. But when I'm actually doing it, I hope that people don't need to ask me that question because they kind of know themselves. They get this glimpse into what I'm doing. And they don't have to like it. I don't expect them to to like it. But I've, I hope they will. And I think if they get that glimpse, they will. And also, I'm hoping they'll take the time to see if that glimpse is available to them. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out, but that's fine too. There's no obligation to like it. Personal story to this. Years ago, I was teaching storytelling at Augusta. This is a heritage workshop in Davidson Elkins College in West oh, Virginia. I know it well, yeah. yeah. And used to come for Irish Week. I've been to a couple of those workshops, in fact. Uh, yeah. And uh, you, uh, you gave a concert one night there, and it was with Mikhail. And I was in the audience, and I don't think I was alone in this experience, I saw the entire audience transported out of time into some <laughs> other moment. So a good number of years later, I met my wife, Paula, and somehow I'd mentioned I'd been at Augusta. She said, oh, I went there once to visit a friend. I wasn't taking a course. I was there only for two days. But this fellow, Kevin Burke, played. She said, I've never been in a concert where I saw something happen that has stayed with me for the rest of my life. And I looked at her and said, you were in the same concert. <laughs> and uh, it, it's, um, it's a marvelous thing. Yeah. And, of course, I'm, kind of, I'm, I'm oblivious to a lot of it from that end. I'm on the other side of it, you know. But it's nice to know that um, people can enjoy it to that extent. And so you've, you've handed me a CD. It's called The Pound Ridge and The Sessions. So what is this about? Well, I met a guy called John Brennan, who's a great electric guitar player. And he was in, interested in investigating traditional Irish music. He's from California originally, Southern California. Uh, was friendly with some of the Eagles when they were teenagers and played around with that crowd. He was in Chris Hillman's band for a while, played with Poco. Uh, 
So he's very, uh, you know, he cut his teeth on that kind of California country rock music of the 70s. Great player. So he was talking about traditional music and I was talking about his background, his rock and roll background. And we just decided to do something together. So we we talked about different things that we liked. And we found we had a lot of uh, common ground. So, you know, he was talking about playing some Irish music with a kind of a rock, in a rock and roll setting. And I said to him, you know, I wouldn't mind playing some rock and roll music in an Irish fiddle setting. So he said, well, well, let's give it a go. So we did a couple of kind of rock classics, one of them very influenced by a suggestion from Winnie Horn. I know, 10 or 15 years ago, we were in Germany together, and she said, you know that track by the Allman Brothers, Jessica? Wouldn't that sound great on the fiddle? And I said, well, someday I'm going to do that and you're going to be involved. So that's on there with Winnie. And then talking to John, we uh, mentioned this guitar break on a Jimi Hendrix song called May This Be Love on his first album. And we both kind of uh, reacted to the the mention of the guitar break. It wasn't the song we were interested in. It was the guitar break and how much we both liked it. So we decided to record that, ditch the song, but play the break and flesh that out into its own piece of music. And we got Mike McGoldrick to put pipes and flute on it and Nuala Kennedy's playing whistles on it and... Um, there's, I think there's a little, there's some accordion on there, I think. And, but basically it's, uh, it's, uh, a Jimi Hendrix piece, you know. Um, we, d- we, d- we took a blues or two, a um, country song or two, a country tune or two. There's a Bill Monroe thing. There's one I recorded with Cal Scott, a Bill Monroe piece called Evening Prayer of Blues that John really liked and he wanted to do it with electric guitar. Anyway. Well, I this just, is a kind of a good segue again. We're back to the medium itself. These, these objects that are made out of wood and metal and horsehair in the case of the fiddle. Mm-hmm. So um, what can you bring to our understanding of this instrument? And, uh, and in this case, of course, it's, it's working with the electric guitar, which I do think, again, has, there's something, um, Connecting these two instruments now because of electricity and the sustain. This yeah, idea. the sustain is the main thing to me. Um, so we we had this this combination of Irish music and rock and roll music, and somewhere in there there's a place for country music too. So we put in a couple of tracks that you'd associate with country music. There was a piece that I. I learned from Eddie Lang and Lonnie Johnson, a recording I got when I was a teenager. Two great jazz 
players. I brought that up as a suggestion when, as soon as John started playing it on the on the electric guitar, you know, it, it, the original recording was two acoustic guitars, like pre-jangle. When you hear it on fiddle and electric guitar, it sounds country. We didn't change it very much. We just played it and it thought, wow, that sounds like a country tune. It doesn't sound like jazz at all. But we recorded it anyway uh, and thought, well, this this is a kind of a new twist on that old piece of music from the 30s. Um, and then I had learnt some Bach minuets and I thought, just to be contrary, let's put that on there too. So we did it in a very folky way. Put, we put bazooki on there, bazooki and guitar, which is kind of what you'd hear in the Bothy band or Alton or Dedan. You know, it's kind of bazooki and guitar has become a kind of a stereotypical Irish accompaniment now. When I was a kid, that wasn't the case, but now it's kind of the standard. Um, and the way I play the fiddle isn't the same as a classical player. So to hear Bach in that context is a little bit unusual, which I kind of like. And it demystifies it in a lot of ways, you know, brings it over into the traditional world, uh, which I think it gives it a nice, it's a nice glimpse of a different context for the Bach music. And also there's a song on there about London, my gleaned from some of these people I knew growing up in London. Let's listen to Kevin perform a portion of the Jimi Hendrix song, May This Be Love, with John Brennan on electric guitar. He follows this with a sample of Bach minuets played with an Irish music sensibility.
to talk about this violin? What what is it about it that just gr- has grabbed hold of you? And well, I had an old violin, uh, and it just got too old. The neck was moving periodically. I'd have to have it repaired, and then I was told this is the last time we can repair it. Next time, it probably won't work. You'll have to get a new neck or something, but it, this, is, this kind of repair isn't going to work. Probably you'll need a new fiddle. So I was talking to a guy in London, John Dilworth, great restorer, and he was saying, you know, I bet we should have a go at it. I bet we could do something. So he made a new neck for it, and it was great for about a year. And then I was in, I was in California, uh, I was in Colorado. And what year is this? Give or take. About 1998, 1999. Okay. I was in Colorado, and the fiddle uh, was, I could feel that, as I was playing, I could feel the fiddle changing. And I realised the neck is moving, and of course, very a very small movement has a huge effect, and it became more or less impossible to play. Was so, this happening in the middle of a tune? Yeah, it was happening. You know, the dry air and the warm sunshine. So you're performing combined, yeah. So are you chasing this tune, trying to keep yeah, up with exactly. this in yeah. real time? Yeah. That's a that's a memory. Yeah, not a good one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I kind of got away with it, but you know, the audience didn't go away saying, "Oh, wow, his instrument fell apart in the middle of a tune." And of course, that's what I was thinking all the time. This thing is going to fall apart any second. So I brought it back to John Dilworth. And he said, you know, that first guy was probably right. You can't repair it. It's too, he says, I can stabilize it, but it's time to get a new instrument because having stabilized it, it might last six months, might last 25 years. But, you know, the way I travel around, exposing it to different temperatures and different uh, humidity levels and, and just the, the the trauma of banging around all the time. Uh, I had to get a new fiddle. So I was in Ireland a few months later, and I went to see this friend of mine, Mick Dehoog, as we call him. Um, he's It's a Dutch name. I think it's properly pronounced Dehoog, D-E-H-O-O-G. And his first name is the Dutch version of Michael, whatever that is. But we know him as Mick de Hoog. He's been living in Dublin for a long time. So I went along to see him and said, I'm looking for a fiddle. Have you got anything? And he says, I don't actually. He says, I've got a fiddle here that I've made for someone else. You're welcome to try it to see what I'm doing these days. But... uh, um, I don't have anything made already that I could sell you. So I said, well, let me try this one. Um, So I played on it for, I don't know, half hour or something, only to find out that I'd been playing on it for, I don't know, hour and a half, two hours or something. 
I thought it was only a matter of minutes, but I'd been playing on it for ages. And um, when I put the fiddle down, Mick said, uh, I think you better keep that. <laughs> I said, you think so? He says, yeah. And I said, I thought you made it for someone else. He says, oh, I'll, I'll make another one. <laughs> so I said, well, let me think about it. I, I took it away. And I did a gig that night, or the following night. Yeah, I think it was that night. I did a gig in the Seamus Ennis Centre, north of Dublin. And uh, I came back after the gig and got in touch with Mick the next day and said, yeah, if, I, if you still let me keep that, I'll, I'll hang on to it. So I've been playing that ever since. That's this fiddle here? Yeah, I got it. It was made in the year 2000. So I got it in the year 2000. And I was 50 in the year 2000. And my brother, for my 50th birthday, gave me a bow uh, that he made. And he's a bow maker in Ireland? He's a bow maker in Ireland, yeah. His name's Noel. Noel Burke. So I got a new fiddle and a new bow in the year 2000. And uh, that's what I've been playing ever since. And why do you like this one? Why? Yeah. What? I don't know, really. Um, it's strong, clear, um, responds the way I like. Um, the bow, I don't have to tell it what to do very much. I just think about what I might like it to do, and it seems to do it. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm kind of lucky. I did a concert recently when Mick and Noel were both in the audience. And uh, that's a weird feeling, performing in front of the guy who made your fiddle and the other guy who made your bow. Um, Noel is my, you know, he's my brother, but he's a lot younger than me. Uh, I was uh, 15 when he was born. So we didn't really grow up together, but uh, in the later years of our life, we've become pretty close, uh, partly because of the the musical attachment, but also he plays the flute, plays Irish music on the flute, and uh, listens to a lot of music. We we have a lot of the same musical tastes. And Does he also make flutes or just the bows? No, just bows. Tell me just a memory or two of certain places you've played your violin that just somehow, for some reason, have stayed with you. Well, there's a place called The Lodge out by my... near. It's, it's about halfway between where my father and mother grew up. My father grew up in a village called Dromore West. And a few miles outside Dromore West, out towards Lochiski, towards where my mother grew up, there's this old ruined building which was uh, an 18th century hunting lodge, I believe. It's just a ruin now. But it's, it always struck me as a really eerie 
eerie place. It's 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 in a it's deserted. It's on a really quiet road. Um, there are no buildings nearby. The lake is very near. Lachiski is very near. Um, so I'd go out there uh, sometimes in the middle of the night and play there on my own. It's kind of daft, but nice. <laughs> um, where else have I played? Played on Fifth Avenue in the street. I've played played on many streets in Ireland. Um, I played in a coal mine one time. I've played in a salt mine. Oh, have you? In Germany. What was that like? Played on an airplane. Um, there's a, there's a concert hall in this salt mine in Germany. A thousand seater. Oh. So it's this huge cavern that they dug out of the salt. You go down, I don't know how far down, it's a long way down, and then you go through these tunnels. They're so big, they drive trucks up and down the tunnels. They're not two-way tunnels, I don't think. Just one, one-way one tunnels. Um, and each tunnel is big enough to drive a truck. And then after you've driven through the, one of these tunnels for, I don't know, half a mile or something, it opens out into this big cavern, which is a thousand-seater concert hall. <laughs> so I've played on, let's see, I've played on boats and trains and planes. Um, I like playing on boats. I, there's the ferries, which I'm very attracted to around Seattle. And we were coming back from the San Juan Islands and uh, was on the back of the boat and the, the metal, the way the back was, it was raining. So I was under the cover, but the acoustics, just were one of those sweet spots where mm -hmm. however it worked, the, the fiddle just had the best sound. And I started playing the Scottish airs, uh, sitting in the stern of a boat and uh, watching the frothy water from the uh, propellers behind. Uh, that's a memorable moment. Yeah. I used to take the boat to Ireland often and uh, usually play on the boat, sometimes outside, sometimes inside. I love how when you, you take out an instrument and play it in public, it seems somewhat more awkward today than it ever has. It's just... I, I I think maybe it's just me. I start to feel, well, maybe I'm bothering these people because everybody's got the little headphone things in or they're looking at their smartphones. But usually that's not the case. If I have the boldness to take out the fiddle and I don't play real loud to bother anyone, my wife might get out the banjo, usually people just come over and and they're delighted. And it's it's like, oh, yeah, we used to do this as human beings. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It's true. It's not. It's kind of fallen out of fashion these days. Yeah. But maybe it'll come back. <laughs> I think there is such a enchantment in this, especially in our age of the machine. And I just wondered what you might say about the music itself that you play. This traditional music, a large part of what you play is traditional Irish music. 
of being in touch with a, a different way that people lived with time, how they thought about time. Uh, it seems today that time is our master, and it, it no longer, <laughs> even the devices we make about time, we serve it somehow, and it no longer is serving us. Yeah, um, well, it's true. The people I learned this music from were definitely from a different type of a world. Um, my grandparents, when I went to stay with my grandparents, there was no running water or electricity. And I, re I remember the electricity coming to the village and my grandfather not being that interested in it at all. In fact, I think he kind of uh, resisted it. I don't think he, I think he was hostile to it. Which at the time, you know, I was 12 or 13. He was 82 or 3. So there's 70 years difference between us. I, I couldn't understand his resistance, but, you know, now... When I look back, I, I think, well, he'd, he'd lived his whole life without electricity. He didn't quite trust it. He was probably a bit afraid of it. And he'd have to pay for it. <laughs> and, and he'd spent, you know, he'd spent a whole life without it. He just didn't see the need, you know. There's yeah, um, an old uh, joke from Maine I liked where a fellow had a, a farm and they... Um, the where his farm was is the phone company, this is early days of phone, had to go up through this valley and his property was, they had to have the right-of-way to connect a whole other area. And he wouldn't have it. He wouldn't sell them the right-of-way, let alone not have a telephone. Finally, they came up with a scheme. They came to him and they said, Amos, we're going we're gonna to give you free telephone for as long as you want for the rest of your life. And you will find it such a convenience to have it that once you have it, you'll understand so more than anything, just because he was probably just tired of them pestering him, he agreed, and they put the line through, and they gave him this phone. So one day he's there with his friend, Neil, and they're having dinner, and the phone starts to ring, and it rings, and it rings, and it rings, you know, and Neil's getting more uncomfortable with this, and finally he says, Amos, aren't you going to answer your telephone? And he looks over and says, Neil, I had that put there for my convenience. <laughs> <laughs> Something yeah. in that story that captures yeah. oh, uh, totally. an instinctual understanding of where this might be taking us in terms of how we would organize our lives, our time. You have bridged both worlds. When I first came in, we were talking about you're here for a few days, you're off again. And I said, well, maybe towards the end of the interview, we could, uh, we could talk about that. This instrument that you love and that has given you a door into expression and a livelihood also, it has also required a lot from you. Can you talk about the give and take and the, the ups and downside of this? What, what's this uh, journey been about? Well, I remember an old man telling me when I was only a child that he, he said that the... Um, the fiddle will be your passport. 
which I thought was complete nonsense. Like a passport is a book with your with your photograph in it. How could a fiddle ever be mistaken for this little book with a with a photograph? But of course, I realise now what he was talking about was it allows you to travel wherever you go. People uh, will accept that you're a musician and it kind of puts you in a certain category, usually a favourable category, but not always. Um, and you know, in this modern world, the passport is... Uh, Passport analogy is definitely very true. I do a lot of travelling uh, over and back to Europe regularly. I've been to Australia, New Zealand. Um, not not on a regular basis, but I've made that journey a few times. So I, I travel around the States all the time, travel around Europe. Um, And that in itself is a kind of a privilege to go to different places and bring with me this kind of music that I grew up with and uh, let people see it and hear it. But at the same time, um, the, the physical demands of present-day travel and the time, the schedule, uh, kind of goes against the grain to some extent. Uh, when you're traveling, you're very governed by the schedule, the flight time, the, the, the sound check time, the departure time, the meal time. And that, can, that, that makes life tiring. Um, but on the other hand, um, it's the price you have to pay for um, being part of this musical world that I inhabit, you know, so I don't resent it. But that would be the downside. And of course, the more time I go away to some other place means less time here in this place, which for the last 30 some years has been my home. This is where my family live, and um, it's hard being away from them. Um, but on balance, it's okay, you know. They put up with it, which you know it can be easy for them either, but. Like I was saying about my music teacher, we just kind of get on with it, you know. That's exactly what I thought about when you were saying that. I, was, I went back to that, her saying, there's no use complaining about it, yeah. you just do what you have to do. I was thinking too about the time. Did you ever hear the story about the guy feeding his pig? Um, when there was a guy holding a pig up to an apple tree and the, and the pig was eating apples off the tree 
while the farmer was holding the pig up. And a passerby said, what are you doing to the farmer? And the farmer says, well, I'm letting the pig eat some apples. And he said, well, you could uh, put the pig on the ground and just let him eat the apples that have fallen off the tree and that would save an awful lot of time. And the farmer says, uh, well, I suppose you're right, but what's time to a pig? <laughs> Where is this uh, couple, doctor and lawyer from, let's say Portland, or, or maybe New York, and they're driving through West Virginia, and, uh, and their BMW, and they run out of gas. This back country road, you know, they were there going around to antique places, mm -hmm. and just spending the weekend, but they're out of gas, so they're walking along the road and looking for a general store, someplace to get help. And they pass a farm, and there's this old woman, and she's milking the cow, and it's a hot summer evening, so instead of doing it in the barn, she's brought old, the cow out and tied her to the fence, and she's on her three-legged stool, and she's just playing a tune in the bucket. Ch -ch 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 -ch. So the, and the fellow happens to yell over to her. He says, excuse me, ma'am, can you tell us what time it is? And a woman, she kind of scrunches down on the stool, and she pushes up one tee to the cow and pushes up another, and she squints and yells back, just six o'clock. And the wife of the man says, well, how does she know that? Well, these country people, they, they know things. They have ways of seeing things. Well, let's go over and ask her. So they go over. Excuse me, ma'am, could you tell us how you knew the time by that cow's udder? And she said, well, I, I could show you easier than I could tell you. And they said, the woman said, here, you ever milked a cow before? And the woman said, no, she hadn't. You know, she's all dressed up. And said, well, here, sit on the stool. <laughs> Get hold of one teat. Yeah, push. Now push up one. Push up. Now squint. And look, see the clock on the barn wall over there? <laughs> Old school stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, why don't we uh, grab your fiddle here and uh, play a few notes, but just tell me, Anything about the fiddle, if somebody were to try and understand how this thing works, what would you tell them? I know that's a huge subject. Well, how does the fiddle work? It's a piece of wire stretched over two notches. One of the notches is called the bridge. It's a wooden piece that sits on top of the body of the fiddle. And the other notch is down at the other end near the peg box. You've got all these pegs that will tighten the strings or loosen them which is how it's tuned. And then up near the bridge end, you rub the bow hair on the string. And hopefully you'll get a sound something like that. If the bow isn't straight, if you push it at an angle, you get a sound like that, which I'm sure is familiar to many. <laughs> But you, over the years, you learn to try and keep the bow straight.
And then when you put your fingers on the string, if I put my first finger on the string, the string gets shorter, which means the uh, note goes up. When I say it gets shorter, the distance between the bridge and the other end gets shorter. Because my finger is now acting like that notch, it's trapping the string on the fingerboard. If I put the next finger down, and then the next one, we start to get a scale. And then do that on the next string. So you just string all those uh, notes together and hopefully you'll get a tune. So play us one melody and then we'll call it quits here. Your parents have passed on? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, do you think there's music in that other world? Oh, I don't even know if there is that other world. Ah. <laughs> I, I've yet to find out. I know. We but don't know it, it but... If I, it's there, I'm sure there's music in it. I wonder if you'll see the people you've... you've a world known. without music could be a very odd place. But, I mean... You know, deaf people inhabit a world without music. So, uh, who knows? Well, thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theatre. Our music was arranged and performed by the string quartet The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. You can also access additional podcasts, and you can send us a note or make a donation. I leave you now with a lovely poem from William Butler Yeats, titled The Fiddler of Dooney. 
When I play on my fiddle in Dooney, folk dance like a wave of the sea. My cousin is priest in Kilvernet, my brother in Morhorabui. I pass my brother and cousin. They read in their books of prayer. I read in my book of songs I'd bought at the Sligo Fair. When we come at the end of time to Peter sitting in state, he will smile on the three old spirits, but call me first through the gate. For the good are always the merry, saved by an evil chance, and the merry love the fiddle, and the merry love to dance. And when the folks there spy me, they will all come up to me with Here is the Fiddler of Dooney and dance like a wave of the sea.